0: First of all, one in five people over the course of a lifetime have engaged in consensual non monogamy, right? So that's as, as my uh, colleague Dr. Amy Moores likes to say, that's as common as owning a house cat.
1: listen to the last episode just, <laughs> just on autoplay at this point
2: oh you're up to date yes yes how are you
1: i'm pretty good i'm pretty tired i've been working lots so it's late
2: it's it's probably it, it one of late. our later recording sessions actually isn't
1: it yeah forced print just basically forced into it by our ever busying work schedules
2: it's a bit like that though eh? this time of year it's just like yeah everything's chockers it's like i'm trying to organize to see friends and i'm like i've got monday free i'm
1: sorry i'm an incredibly important person i don't have time for you, friends. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh god babe I, I have one friend i can't imagine having more than one friend it would be so exhausting
1: you have one friend
2: i'm joking it's like what people say when it's like non-monogamy it's like oh, oh my god can't... i couldn't have more than one relationship it's like i couldn't have more than one friend
1: who has time for more than one, one friend, friend. Who has the emotional capacity for that?
2: Random. Weirdos. Anyway, so I'm just going to get straight into some stuff I want to tell you about. Yes,
1: because this is all you, baby. Thank you. This is all you. I've just been too busy for all of you. I am sorry. I will be better. Well, we'll see.
2: (laughs) So, um, first things first... Those of you who follow the Open, the organization for polyamory and ethical non-monogamy on Instagram will probably know this, but they shared a post five days ago about some breaking news, which as a former journalist is almost my favorite thing in the entire world. Also slightly triggering. No, like, in a good way, though. <laughs> like Honestly, there is nothing like the thrill of breaking news in a newsroom. Oh, okay, okay. Like, it's like a drug. It kind of probably kept me as a journo for too long.
1: I was just thinking about the the pressure that, that's going to come with that. No, but,
2: like, that's- that adrenaline, you don't feel it. It's just like, I've got to get this out. It's, like, probably one of the best feelings.
1: Okay. What's the breaking news, then? So,
2: the breaking news is that the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, just became the second city in the U.S. to protect individuals with diverse family and relationship structures from discrimination. Yay! So some of you will be aware that in March, Somerville, Massachusetts introduced this law and Cambridge and another city called Arlington introduced similar things, but not, too, not as like concrete, Somerville was like the first one in America that did this sort of protecting diverse relationship and family structures. And so now Cambridge has done the same thing. So what have they done? It's a comprehensive ordinance that prohibits harassment and discrimination based on a person's relationship, status or family structure. So these protections encompass employment, banking, businesses, public accommodations and more. And there's a housing bill that apparently is pending as well. But that's really exciting, basically. So, diverse family and relationship structures often face discrimination and stigma and other barriers, as everyone listening to this show will know about. And it just ensures that individuals in consensually non-monogamous relationships and non-nuclear families enjoy the same legal protections as any other family or relationship. So, that's really exciting news. Yeah. And... It's just a nice way to sort of end the year, I suppose. Like we started off with Somerville being this sort of beacon of Mm -hmm. freedoms and of protections that people who are in non-monogamous relationships need and deserve and now we've got a second one and it's all in Massachusetts but it's just like you need the precedent. You need people to be able to point to other things say, oh, they're doing it. This is how it is.
1: Yeah. Well, look, Massachusetts is a beacon of academic uh, excellence yeah. in the United States and the world. And I guess that me- that makes it a good place for these things to sort of start being introduced because they, they, they are example setters in that sense, right? Um, Harvard Law School, right? Well, that's right. Like these places
2: aren't that far from them. Yeah. So it makes sense that there's like a high academic population, a younger population, a more queer population Mm -hmm. in these areas. So it's just really nice to know that. And also, of course, it helps people that are in non-monogamous relationships, but also different family structures, structures that aren't nuclear families. Mm -hmm. And that can look many different ways. That can be more than two parents or... Anything else that's any, non nuclear?
1: Any blended family? Yeah, exactly. Going to benefit from this as well. So Hundred percent. So it
2: obviously has benefits outside of non monogamy, but it's just nice to be able to yeah have that. Just talk about that. So do, do yay! Hear, do
1: you hear that? Do you hear that? It's a tiny round of applause for Massachusetts. <laughs> they deserve a big one, but I, I've only got two hands.
2: Sorry. I'm sure they appreciate it still,
1: my love. And Cambridge more specifically, but but Massachusetts seem to be In general. You know, Good on them. Yeah. So what there's else that. We got?
2: And so yeah, that's exciting. I learned a new word this week. And it so you know how we always say that like you're polyamorous by orientation. Correct. Mondo. And then there are people that are monogamous by orientation. Indeed. And then I'm always like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of in the middle. Like, I'm all about my most authentic expression of love. I think
1: I know what this word is.
2: Um, I mean, everyone probably listening to this is rolling their eyes. Be like, how did you not know this Even word? I man? am.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: but it's new for me, guys. So I'm sharing my journey with you. Yes. Uh, it is ambiamorous. And I think that's me. Because ambiamorous people are okay with either one. Depending on who they're with, and they think it's fluid, and yeah. So, anyway, I mean, I don't really need another like word or label. I'm not really gonna like use this in.
1: Yeah, but that's a good one. But it's just
2: like a good one for me to be able to articulate sometimes. I think
1: ambi implies fluidity. Yeah. So it's not a binary label. Yeah. Like, I am an ambivert, like, in the fact that sometimes. Is that a word? Yes. An ambivert is, is neither introvert nor extrovert. They are they can they depending on, you know like right now I'm very I, I'm I'm an introvert I'm very much ready to be alone, <laughs> and 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 just you know read or well right now sleep you can probably tell <laughs> or uh, sometimes I can be incredibly extroverted like I was earlier on when I was at a fitness race and chatting with a bunch of topless dudes <coughs> true story. <laughs> We might need to talk about that at some point in the we future. Will. Yeah. Um,
2: but yeah, so I just learned that word, and I hadn't really heard that word before. And it seems sometimes when you come across these things, it seems silly because you're like, obviously, I should have known that, but I didn't know that. So,
1: Plus it's, well the other thing about it as well is that it's it's actually not necessarily a new word. It's like a it's like two halves. Of different words that you already knew that mm. they've, they have kind of been chopped off the beginning slash mm-hmm. end of those words and put together and it makes sense. Yeah. You immediately, it immediately clicks. Yeah. yeah. And
2: I think it's just like bisexual
1: or. Is there an ambisexual? Yeah, Probs.
2: It's, it's just like, you know, there's these two sort of ends that everyone kind of exists on this spectrum and it's just like of course yeah. there's a word that exists to describe that as a whole and it's just yeah it was just interesting. I didn't know that and came across it and I was like
1: and okay. be really Yeah,
2: on yeah. And like it's like, you know, a lot of people identify as bisexual in some way. And it's yeah, it just it's really interesting. So yeah. so yes, those well, are all the things I had to tell you.
1: Thank you for that. That was wonderful. You're welcome. Um, I appreciate all the all the all the things. Yeah. Um I have a request now. Uh, I want to... Take a break? Yeah, but I. But more importantly, I want to talk to Heath. Dr. Heath. <gasps> Dr. Heath Schesinger. Dr. Heath. Uh, just a quick warning. This episode uh, features our first ever on-air proposal. Uh, and it's <laughs> wonderful. Um, and we look forward to inviting you all to what will inevitably be a fabulous <laughs> hair wedding. Because... Dr. Heath has the most fabulous hair. Anyway, he does have fabulous uh, hair. I, the other reason why I want to talk to Dr. Heath is because it means that my work is done because Past Me is doing the work for me. And he's it's a great guy. He's isn't a great it? guy.
2: He is. Uh, you guys are going to love this episode. Than, We're so excited better, to bring it to you. He's
1: better than the me right now. We'll be right back with Dr. Heath. I am it's excited about it.
2: All right, then. Break time.
1: Big break time. Break. Right. So today, our guest is, there's a, there's a lot to go through here, <laughs> uh, a counseling psychologist <laughs> who has over a decade of experience in therapy, coaching, and consultation services. He's also the founding co-chair of the American Psychological Association's Division 44 Committee on Consensual Non-Monogamy and the co-founder of the Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition. Plus, he's working uh, on some more exciting stuff that we are going to be chatting about shortly. Welcome to the show, Dr. Heath Schesinger.
0: Hey, thanks or for Dr. Having me. Heath. Glad to be We're
1: going to go with Dr. Heath. We're going to go with Dr. Heath. It sounds cool. <laughs> but sounds it's nice great. to say the, fir- the whole name in the, in the yeah.
2: first <laughs> instance, isn't it?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah the latter half has a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you know, we've written it out phonetically, so we wanted to make sure we got it correct, right? Absolutely. Um, but yeah, as Rich mentioned, you're working on some sort of exciting stuff regarding research and non-monogamy. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, we'd love to just hear about what you're working on and how you got to working on the stuff that you're working on
0: sure well, in terms of the story of how i got here um you know for me it started actually i was well on my way of pursuing a master's degree of ministry um before i made a shift in part large part because i started developing feelings for one of my best guy friends and where in the line of churches or ministries that I was a part of, that was frowned upon. And I really felt restricted in terms of my capacity to love and be authentic. Mm-hmm. And then I pivoted to pursuing a PhD. Actually, I got a master's in education, higher education along the way. And then I pursued a PhD in counseling psychology. And it was really my experience of by then, you know, identifying as. Bisexual and having conversations about that and feeling supported in that environment but when I started talking about the capacity for individuals and even families to have the capacity to Include more than two adults or feel attraction or draw or love to more than one person that that's when I started experiencing what felt like a similar stigma or reaction to when I was talking about same-sex attraction in the church Mm -hmm in academia and in the broader context of society. And I just started asking questions about that and became, became really curious and 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 even was seeing a number of people that I knew and in my world that really seemed to be struggling with fitting the mold, not just in terms of monogamy or their sexual orientation, but also in terms of how they were structuring their family. I, I My family was a divorced family. I felt ostracized or stigmatized for that. And I saw a number of my friends that were entering marriages and moving away and, and being in their white picket fence and their 2.5 kids and their dog, but (laughs) feeling isolated Mm. and really feeling lonely Mm -hmm. and having a difficult time navigating and managing, really living this, what we were told was the American dream. And so that prompted me just to start asking questions about the structure of family and the structure of relationships and how healthy that was and really that was uh, some of the origin of this new project that I'm working on where we're launching what we're calling the Modern Family Institute and and that's really the heart behind it is that we want to highlight the challenges that families and relationships are experiencing today by promoting a one size fits all model for everyone and really just focusing on doing research and providing education and establishing a clinic and addressing policy support uh, to have our cultural norms and policies reflect who we are and how we're doing family and relationship today rather than this prescribed norm or really this this experiment of the nuclear family that that really started in the 1940s and 50s um, but has never really represented the majority of who we are
2: yeah i mean where um, blended family, like Rich has a mm. child, so we are also like already outside of that mould and then, of course, you add the non-monogamy element as well mm. and, I mean, something that we sort of noticed when we started looking at non-monogamy is something that you mentioned just there about this lack of research about the non-monogamous experience and about, you know, families in general and how those two pieces can fit, to- fit together and how different identities can all intersect with this non-monogamous Uh, space so what do you think the impact is when there isn't research I mean first Mm -hmm. of all on the individuals themselves that might be practicing non-monogamy and have families and be trying to sort of connect all of these things but also do you feel like there's a knowledge gap at large that could impact the world more widely um
0: absolutely
2: yeah so what what are the impacts on those two sorts of different groups do you think
0: yeah certainly i think the absence of research can really perpetuate stigma and misunderstanding more broadly and there's uh, quite a few with specifically with consensual non-monogamy but i think that one of the more common ones that i see that is perhaps most detrimental is this perception that non-monogamous relationships don't work and I think that this kind of has a, a, a mutuality of uh, impact where there's it not only prompts people to feel stigmatized and oppressed when they want to, to have conversations about this. So in, in this feeling of othering or feeling that you're different, we, we recently published a study internalizing the concept of Non-monogamy negativities where there's this guilt or this shame and Really one of the key questions that I have that really hasn't been really examined is what is the impact? of a monolithic perspective about love and relationships how might be holding how might that? Uh, commitment to Monogamy and not normalizing that there's valid alternatives in consensual non-monogamy prompting any more people to cheat than what there would if non-monogamy was normalized, right? A third Mm -hmm. of monogamous relationships experience sexual infidelity. And it is consistently across cultures, one of the leading causes of families fracturing and divorce. Mm -hmm. So it certainly intersects with the family. And and I think a big part of it is that we we have these blinders on in terms of even that there are viable options. And if we're not normalizing, non-monogamy is a valid option then we are essentially setting ourselves up to continue in this rinse and repeat pattern, and that we just accept that this is one of the the challenges that we face in long-term relationships. But really, if non-monogamy was normalized, I think it would have prompted many of those people to be able to have conversations earlier on the process Mm -hmm. and to, to potentially pursue healthier ways of navigating our capacity. To be drawn to wanting security and having novelty.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, uh, it's it's super interesting um, when we talk about normalization, um, or even or even in a way, kind of like social monopolization. Um, you know, like d- domination <laughs> in a way. I feel like that that um, the the, the mono normativity or the mon- mono normalization is very much that it's a it's a mono. A, a monogamously uh, dominated world to the point that, mm. that, that, I mean, you know, you can talk about any given prejudice, any given kind of um, uh, other other example of, of normalization, whether it be heteronormativity or cisnormativity, um, you know, you name it. But I feel like when it comes to our relationships and and monog- monogamy, you know, we're, we're talking about something that is so normalised that people don't even know that is other. Op- right. There are other options, right? And so that right. I mean that is you know incredibly damaging, and, and ultimately, as you say, we're talking about stigma here. Um, in terms of the research that you're doing uh, on that, um, how how could how can new research actually help with reducing those stigmas? around non-monogamy, um, and an alternative family structure if you, you know, to expand it a little bit more how, yeah, w- w- in what ways is, yeah. is the research that you're doing or, or new research, in um, your yeah. in general, how is that helping?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that, you know, it's understandable that even as we're thinking about how cultural norms are shifting and changing, right? Like non-monogamy yeah. is coming. Yeah. We're only the second generation to have birth control. And a recent poll indicated that one-third of Americans indicate that their ideal relationship structure is something other than monogamy. So this is happening. This cultural trend is going to happen. It's going to continue to happen. I think the the more interesting question is, how fast is this going to happen? But even I'm thinking, how do we be thoughtful and healthy stewards of this movement? How do we help provide guidance to people as they're stepping into... This new era of a new paradigm that for the first time in our society, in our our culture, that we have this birth control that is going to shift the nature of how we think about love and relationships because of the way our species is oriented. And so I think research is so important to really help steward this movement well. We can help people avoid the common mistakes of when they're stepping out into this new world, really communicating in a bipartisan way about how this is about integrity. This is about trying to create healthy families and relationships that have consistency. That's really asking the key question of what are families for? What are relationships for? And rather than having this prescribed norm that we're all trying to fit, but really just being thoughtful of honoring the wisdom of the monogamous paradigm and that need for consistency, that need to have trust in my partner's commitment to the relationship, which, by the way, is the most important factor for satisfaction and duration in a relationship, is trusting that my partner is committed. So how do we hold this wisdom of what works in relationships and apply it into this into this new paradigm or this new era? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I mean that's the thing, isn't it? It's like moving forward and, and having I love that you said about sort of stewarding this forward and using that research to be able to inform and and help yeah. people. And I like in your earlier answer you said about people not being sure that non monogamy works and yeah. I, I always find it really interesting when you sort of flip it on its head and think, okay, well, what about monogamy? Does that right. work and, and what right. parts do work and what don't work? And um, we always say this on this show and we say this in our personal lives as well, you know, we're not here to convince anyone to be non-monogamous. Yeah. We are right. just looking at alternatives and taking what works from monogamy and maybe learning about what we have learned about in the past yeah. and then being able to combine that with things that might work for people right. and, and speak to the diversity of human beings. That's right. Right. Mm-hmm. That's
0: right. It's, yeah. And I think of when you're saying that as well, that's a, that's a really astute point. And it, it, it my colleagues and I did a study on people's experience who identify as non-monogamous in a psychotherapy setting. And the most common mistake that therapists made was bl- blaming problems on consensual non-monogamy. Mm-hmm. Right. And we, there's this confirmation bias that ends up happening in our thinking when people that have exposure to a non-monogamous relationship and they see that it doesn't work out, they have a tendency to blame non-monogamy. But really what the research shows is that non-monogamous relationships on average last just as long, they tend to be just as satisfied, right? There's other factors such as how people are communicating, um, et cetera, et cetera, that, that really dictate the success of a relationship because we don't think, of how many monogamous friends do we know? How many monogamous relationships do we know that don't work as well, right? There's a certain percent, I think it's even around like five to 10% of relationships end up working generally. It doesn't, in terms of like ending in marriage and, and long-term you know, uh, happily ever after, if you will, and not getting divorce. So there's really nothing about monogamy or non-monogamy that predisposes the relationship to working. But that is a really harmful stigma and where research can really come in because now we can say that before we'd be like, well, no, no, actually it works. Trust me, like I'm think of my friend such and such. But now we say, well, actually, that perception that you have is just statistically and factually inaccurate. Mm -hmm. We've done comparison studies, multiple of them now. They consistently show this. So it's just that is not statistically accurate. Mm. So even when we're having these conversations, right, especially in these governing bodies, such as the American Psychological Association, the American Medical Association, the American Bar Association, even when having conversations at the municipal level and the state level, um, when trying to advance policy conversations that are inclusive of not just non-monogamy, but but any sort of family or relationship that falls outside of the nuclear norm, which our are, are policies were oriented around, that we have to have data. Mm. Any of the progress that we've had in the conversations, and I'm happy to talk about some of the things that we're doing and some of the successes that we've had, that we cannot make statements without having the data to back that up. And so it's so important that there is support. And even one of the challenges right now and why we're doing the Modern Family Institute is because it's still difficult to get research and financial support from the traditional institutions that are offering that because we're, we're too early in that curve. I anticipate there will come a time where that will be easier. So right now we're having to rely on donations from individuals and donors uh, because to launch an institute like this and even why there's not institutes like this that exist is because at the end of the day, a concept has to be within the Overton window or within this, this, uh, have this degree of acceptability that there's it's it's possible to bring in resources to support that work being done and we're finally at a point where we're at the very nascent stages of where our culture and society is ready for that so now it's it's a really interesting time and why we're finally able right because i've been working in this this field for 15 years mm-hmm. right focusing on these issues but now is the time Where we're really starting to see significant shift happening. Nice.
2: Um, We'd love to hear about some of the successes, but we'd love to, we're going to ask you a few more questions and then maybe we could get some of those towards the end because we'd love to hear about some good news stuff. Sometimes it can feel like you're bogged down in all the negativity and it's just nice to know, like, to hear some of the uh, the positives. And I Mm. will also say that one of, probably both of our favorite things is being able to back up arguments with statistics. So that's oh, quite yeah, satisfying when yeah, yeah. um, <laughs> you can empirical, say that now.
0: Empirical data is God. <laughs> well, yes, well, and that's exactly. That's and, exactly what the, the, the need that Modern Family Institute is wanting yeah, to reach to is just really seeing ourselves as storytellers of highlighting a lot of the research that's already there and promoting additional research, but really helping Provide graphs and tables and really help educate mm. the public and the activists that are focusing mm-hmm. in these areas, so that they have the data they need to make the arguments they they need to make.
2: Yeah, I yeah. love that. Yeah.
1: How good. Um, well, I mean, we're. The, I think one of the sort of, I guess, the obstacles, challenges that may may kind of uh, well is already rearing its ugly head is. Uh, The increased politicisation of identity, uh, specifically sexual and uh, uh, sexual orientation and relationship, and and of course gender is
2: gender nonconformity specifically, really, isn't it? Yeah,
1: Um, and uh, yeah, I I, I think. I mean, I think I already have my opinion on this, but (laughs) I want to have. I definitely want to hear your perspective on it. Obviously, what role do you think this sort of over politicisation is having? on yep. spreading misconceptions about non-monogamy more certainly. specifically
0: certainly it is definitely polarizing the issue like it tends to do which i think is so harmful and unfortunate right because this this really is not in terms of non-monogamy it's it's a bipartisan issue right a recent representative sample and there's been a, a couple in the us and as well as in canada that asked about engagement. With consensual non monogamy. And the survey found that there's one, first of all, one in five people over the course of a lifetime have engaged in consensual non monogamy, right? So that's as, as my uh, colleague, Dr. Amy Moores likes to say, that's as common as owning a house cat, right? This is a common <laughs> phenomenon. I love and that. this is, is going to continue to happen mm. even more, right? As uh, again, with that window about, things really opening or people's authentic interest is something other than non-monogamy or something other than monogamy. But the research found that there's just as many conservatives as there are uh, liberals or people from the right as there are from the left that have engaged in consensual and monogamy. And Mm. religious affiliation is also not predictive. Mm. So what ends up happening is that people that identify as being more on the right and religious because of the cultural norms within their community, don't talk about it as much, but it is happening at, a, at, at at similar rates, right? And even, for example, like the swinging community tends to identify a little bit more to the right and represents a large portion, like half of the broader consensual non-monogamy umbrella. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting to me that it is, and I'm curious to even see where it goes, and really where I would love to see it goes it, it, is that really even capturing some of my background with the church and really what I see some of my mission and where my heart is at is to have these conversations in a way that really focuses on the mutual benefit that this has, really finding arguments that um, really, and even I see the, the motivation behind doing this work is as we kind of said at the top, that it is about creating healthy, happy, Families that are able to provide support, and especially in the modern era, right with you know the increasing wealth gap, with you know being in later stage capitalism, it's more difficult for single families to live off of one uh, uh, income. So mm-hmm. then both parents are having to work, that causes stress on the family. Also with technology and and really the indexing with the nuclear family model, which really was promoted by. Capitalism as a way of to get everyone to separate and be more isolated and and move away from their families. Mm-hmm. So they have to buy another washing machine and dryer and whatever versus having more shared resource models mm-hmm. that that has nothing to do with political issues that we can all coalesce and agree that finding ways to have policies that support creating mutuality and care is healthy and beneficial for everyone. Non-monogamy is just one of those expressions. And oh, by the way, it's not really even about the sex. There's this proclivity to hypersexualize it. I think certainly people, people are drawn to it for mm-hmm. sexual reasons in many regards, but they stay for the community and social and emotional support. Mm-hmm. We recently put out a study that asked people about why they're drawn to non-monogamy. Now, of the 25 unique reasons that people said that the, the response is clustered, Only three of them had to do with sex, but the top seven reasons had nothing to do with sex. So in terms of what people are saying, in terms of why, has to do with social support, emotional support. There's more people around to help me raise my kids and meet my needs. I don't have as much pressure to meet all of my partner's needs, and it's more easeful for us to do this over the long run when we have more people around that can support us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like the the whole village idea
1: that I've kind of yes. alluded to so many times. Right. Um, so and, uh, I, yeah, it, it just sound it sounds, I feel warm when you talk about Me it. Me too, you know? yeah. I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is nice. Yeah. You know? I've got like a, I've, if you've got an image of this kind of, this life in a way, yeah. <laughs> which I won't go into detail of, but like <laughs> you can, you know, everyone has their own image of it and it, but it's, it's very comforting and. Um, it, it, you know, it makes me feel the opposite way I do when I when I think about neoliberalism and capitalism because um, I feel a bit – I get a shiver down my spine mm. when I think of those things. So literally yeah. the opposite. Um, um, yeah.
2: So you mentioned about policymakers and you've got a background in um, mental health and, and psychology as mm-hmm. we mentioned at the top. Yeah. How is yeah. this research important for healthcare as well and for healthcare professionals? Like why do healthcare professionals need to know about this sort of stuff and yeah. alternative families as right. well?
0: Well, because healthcare professionals are inclined and even what our research is showing to make the same stigmatizing, hold the same stigmatizing attitudes and perspectives as the general public, right? And really these places, it's some of the most vulnerable spaces that we go into. We go to our medical provider because we need help. And we're oftentimes in a vulnerable state. We go to our therapist because we're oftentimes in a vulnerable state. So having them perpetuating uh really harmful and stigmatizing perceptives that uh keep us from really talking authentically about who we are has adverse effects on uh our mental health and it's important that we don't have blinders on to this point there's been an erasure of this entire conversation Mm -hmm. and really it's been until more recently Right And in 2018 was the first time, and when we established the Committee on Consensual Non-monogamy, That was the first time in a national professional scientific association, that there was a group of psychologists or professionals that were simply saying, "Hey, we should research and understand this concept." Right? Monogamy was so ingrained in our thinking and our culture that we didn't even think it was worthwhile having a group of individuals that were dedicated to simply collecting data and asking these questions. So it just continues to um, boggle my mind a bit that it has taken so long for us to get here, but we are finally getting to a place where we're we're able to have these conversations. They're starting to move forward, right? We established the Committee on Consensual Non-Monogamy, we're currently writing a report, which will lay the empirical foundation for us to ask the American Psychological Association to take official position on the issue. Right, it reminds me a bit of the conversations in the uh, early, late '60s, early '70s within the American Psychological Association about same or sexual orientation, and finally them removing it from the DSM and starting the work of conducting research and really just advocating for psychologists using empirically informed um uh perspectives and, and and it feels similarly uh in terms of the work that's 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 happening here it's certainly the level of stigma is different and i think it's important to name that and acknowledge that um and in some ways the the opposition or the oppression around it is is similar we're also seeing progress in the american medical uh or, uh, uh, or, or in healthcare more broadly for example we're just proposed a policy statement within the gay and lesbian medical association or glma which is one of the top um lgbtq uh, medical professional associations um in the united states and the world and that was um that policy is moving through and it's it's passed the uh the initial um committee that reviews those policies had an honor was honored to be invited that to get to speak and, and and um uh, answer questions around that. And there's not been a policy, as my understanding, that, that hasn't passed, that, that's that gone through this phase. So it seems like it's just a matter of time before that will pass, which will then will have a trickle down effect in terms of us making, wanting to make position statements within other um, organizations. It will be even easier because then, okay, we're not the first domino, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, and, you know, we're starting to see um, this move forward in a number of other different, professional associations related to medical and mental health care and it's just so encouraging to see that this this progress is happening
2: what i'm hearing you say is like there's a lot of momentum there's a lot of movement
1: i'm hearing get excited people (laughs) i'm I'm feeling i feel i feel the buzz and i think it's part of the way that you talk about it as well is with so much passion and and excitement yourself and it rubs off so yeah i'm feeling quite energized too (laughs) um
2: what do you think the if it could you point to a number of reasons, a single reason, um, about why we're seeing all this momentum recently? Um, I'm yeah. just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, we'll talk about the PD. Yeah, like some of our guests have sort of mentioned maybe there could be some impacts related to the pandemic Pandemic. and people questioning about their relationship um, styles and spending all this time with their partners. But I'm just I'm curious whether you think that's related or whether there's something else. Sure, I think that's
0: Hmm. I think that that's certainly related. But the the factors that I think of is it's been a combination, right? I think in some ways um, a big one I have already mentioned was uh, birth control right, that, that now our cultural norms and paradigm, right, like we, were, it started with the, the free love movement in the 60s, then I think, um, you know, a lot of women's liberation um, had a big part in that also with the LGBTQ movement, racial justice movements, um, that all of those factors played a role also with technology, making it easier to communicate um and and people feeling less isolated right there can be community that forms um but really i think in my mind one of the biggest factors is birth control because the the factors that prompted humans to be inclined to monogamy made sense even though that biologically we had this predisposition toward having the capacity to be drawn to multiple people and even want to have connection with multiple people. But from a health and wellness and, and well-being for culture and society, it made sense to have more of a monogamous paradigm, especially with the post agricultural revolution where we instead of we moved out of being in villages of 100, 150 people and having more shared um, child raising that when we became into wanting to have possessions and uh, storing grain and, and agricultural revolution allowed people to Uh, collect resources and and the increase of capitalism that really pushed us into a more monogamous context when we understood that how uh, paternity and childbearing worked and that then there was a responsibility with that. That's when our whole system came in and it made sense Mm. in some regards pre-birth control for there to be uh, uh, this concept of monogamy. Well, now that is starting to change. Right. Mm -hmm. And when you have birth control using that, well, you got to be careful about having children and and the financial responsibility that comes with having children. Well, now that conversation shifts. And we've already seen even in the first generation, like with the free love movement and then, okay, the AIDS epidemic, we figured that out. And now this is the next thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's just going to continue to unfold. And again, already we are seeing these numbers increase in a third of human beings want something other than monogamy but because of this cultural paradigm and the stigma they aren't able to mm-hmm. and we're not mm-hmm. even able to have conversations about it right again a third of monogamous relationships experience sexual infidelity and that is the leading cause of divorce it is just a matter of time before younger generations who are open-minded are just like well this doesn't make sense for us to keep our blinders on of all the possibilities of how we can structure." A long term strategy for having healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think we're still in that initial pendulum swing with polyamory. And I think we're certainly struggling with how to navigate that in a healthy way, in part because we don't have research, we don't have data, we don't have all these. Um, uh, it's like the, the kind of a whole open terrain that people are figuring out. And we have books and resources that are starting to count to give a sense of wisdom or guidance, but we're in the very nascent stages of this mm-hmm. large-scale cultural shift about how we're doing relationships. This is just the beginning, mm-hmm. right? And where this will go, I think will be fascinating, but it'll be much more normalized Yeah. to similar even with look at the LGBTQ movement, right? We, we saw a 1. 1.5, 1 to 1.5% 1. increase each year Around social acceptance around it. And now it's where comments were like grandma will talk about it Like it's not a big deal, right? Because there's around 70% of people that accept (laughs) Accept this as a valid concept in terms Mm -hmm. of sexual orientation. We're starting to see that with relationship orientation Uh, From my mind, we're about in the mid 90s in terms of acceptance At least in the US and Europe around this issue in terms Mm -hmm. of it's about 25% of people And that's about what it was for same-sex relationships in the mid nineties and anticipate we will see Mm.
1: yeah like really like i was, yeah that's i mean i was born in the 90s so like i wasn't necessarily experiencing it but it kind of surprises me but like in both that we weren't that far ahead with that back then uh but 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 we are but it's also equally it is equally surprising in that we are that far far forward in terms of um uh you know, accepting non-monogamy like that—that is—that is quite surprising. Yeah.
0: Yep. Right. Because you know, in some regards, uh, really the non-monogamy movement is standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Yeah. With yeah. all of the activists and researchers and scholars and people that took risks, you know, in their careers to focus on these issues, they've really set the table. So it's much easier to have these conversations because we already have, uh, you know, this understanding of the impact of. Uh, stigma and really even our playbook that we're doing, all we're doing is just following the lead of what the LGBTQ um, and women's rights and and racial justice rights activists and scholars have done before us in terms of the type of research that we're doing, the types of questions we need to figure out how to focus on. Is this helpful or harmful to the kids? What's the impact of uh, stigma? What are the pain points? How do we address those issues and it's it's you know no different in in terms of what we're what we're doing you know yeah. we're even housed yeah. in the lgbtq division of the apa oh, yeah, yeah yeah
1: right yeah i mean you blew my mind there with the with the birth control uh stuff because that is actually yep. not something i'd ever even thought about but then it's one right. it's 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 that whole thing again where it's like well duh
2: yeah a hundred percent i'm like, like obviously I'm like, I'm like, wants... i never thought
1: of that why? Yeah. Why have never thought of that? That's so obvious. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> it was such yeah. a yeah.
2: big deal. Yeah, and it yeah. still empowers so many women and yeah. couples and and relationships of yeah. more than two as well.
1: So and also the the women's uh, like a progress progression in women's rights and you know the feminist totally. movement. Um Because uh, like it wasn't the, my main reason for sort of. Uh, obviously, my main reason is that I'm oriented this way. <laughs> yeah. But, but like, uh, as I guess as a tertiary reason that kind of made me feel empowered was this whole idea that that marriage is is uh, very much a, as in monogamous marriage is very much a, uh, a patriarchal structure. Yeah, you know, it makes sense when you talk about yeah. it like that.
2: Because yeah. you did say that to me. I remember when yeah. we first started the discussion with me about being polyamorous. You said like, I don't want to control you, but I don't want to feel controlled. I want us to have this like freedom based relationship. And at the time it was quite emotional about it because I was like, not really sure what was going on. Cause again, I didn't have this cultural script of what this meant for us, but it made sense as time went on. And it's something mm. that I really value now and makes me actually feel safe in relationships because I don't Absolutely. feel like I'm being, you know, tied down which yeah, is really right. empowering actually. So when you say to people, "Oh, I feel empowered because my partner like sleeps with other people," like <laughs> people are <laughs> yeah. like, "What?"
0: Right. Right. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, just think of how many women as well, mm-hmm. right, in a heterosexual context felt, you know, disempowered and how this changes in, in a monogamous context, especially if you're financially relying on your partner and how our cultural attitudes and norms are changing. More and more women, right, are going and getting education. But also, this is just an, another wave or, or iteration of, of establishing independence. Instead of getting all your needs met in some regards through one person, there's more autonomy and there's even more accountability, right? Mm. Like we all know, you just from a, a economic model that having a little bit of competition. We want to be thoughtful around this because it's not the same, yeah. right? We want to create security in relationships, but in some ways, we can be. Our best selves and this Mm. is even an understudied Mm. concept right but like we are we are and tend to be our best selves when we aren't getting overly comfortable and I even think of like how has a monolithic perspective on monogamy prompted there to be a whole wave of codependence and relationships that is unhealthy Mm. for society more broadly but it's just like it's so normalized because we have this system of isolation and relying on one person with a nuclear family, how has that potentially cultivated this epidemic of codependence mm-hmm. and how might this start shifting that that epidemic into one that is more healthy or more balanced because you're not so isolated and you're not having you're not stuck uh, on getting all of your needs met through one person yeah.
1: yeah. There's also that cliche as well, obviously, isn't there? That when you, um, the cliche of letting yourself go after you get married, sort of thing. You stop kind of, yes. You stop working on yourself. You stop trying to be the best version of you because you're right. like, oh well, you know, I
0: completed the the game of, of right. the relationship. I'm the escalate escalator now. I mean, yeah. yeah. So yep. yeah. they can't <laughs> leave me. Right. We're, yeah. we're we're isolating ourselves. There's all this cultural uh, expectation that you know pressure to stay together Mm -hmm. despite how much it harms you right yeah Yeah. so it's absolutely yeah
2: Yeah. it's um yeah it's just like it's i think as well in all i think being in a non-monogamous relationship has taught me a lot about my other relationships like with my stepson with my family members my friends like as well of course with richard obviously but i think you know in i've realized that no relationship really you should be letting yourself go. It's it's always an evolution and it's a growth. And I think with romantic monogamous relationships, that is the same, but it's just something that's a, like, it's not really talked about. It's like, you're together, that's right. it. And I think like, that's a principle that we could transfer to all relationships. And that we, yes. that non-monogamous that people could learn from non-monogamy, just like non-monogamous people, Um, are using the things that work from non-monogamy. I think that could be a real like exchange Or learning
0: learning from the mistakes. And and, and really, I think that that's the spirit moving forward Mm. that's ideal is not this like, oh, non-monogamy is the pinnacle or more evolved, but really, I think an integration model where Mm. it's focusing on, hey, there's a lot of wisdom and there's a lot of benefit to to having long-term, stable, healthy relationships. And you know what? Monogamy in some regards has really been indexing around that. And there's some real gems in terms of creating security that let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and just completely go off the deep end. Right. Like how do we because we're not robots. Right. And I see a number of people really struggling in this process of opening too quickly, opening too fast. Right. And sometimes trying to take on too much, I think, in some regards, it makes it difficult or we're kind of like moving into kind of romanticizing forms of non-monogamy that m- that may be difficult in part because of the, the, the world that we live in, but also because of our hardware and, and in terms of uh, having needs for security. And, and really, there's the difference between like a philosophical ideal in terms of non-attachment and recognizing that we are still human beings that really crave and need consistency um, mm. as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah we've uh, we've kind of um, been keeping our ear to the ground on on some you know some positive things that that are happening in in this in this world about um some of the some of the uh, developments in in legislation in Massachusetts in Somerville yeah. Cambridge um yeah. and these are positive things right but we want more <laughs> So, what, <laughs> so, Dr. What, Heath, we want more. <laughs> we always want more positive in the world because there's enough negativity. Well, so, what yeah. can you tell us about some of the positive change that has already happened, either yeah. from in the work that you're involved in, or from the work you're involved
0: yeah. in? right. And really, quite honestly, want to be clear to your listeners as well. If they if they want more, and we want more, to be frank, we need we need financial support. We're at this stage of the right now. All this work that's being done all of my colleagues and i that we've these groups that we found we are volunteering our time right Right. so we've gotten all of this done and i'll talk a little bit on what we've accomplished but it's happened by us essentially volunteering our time and bringing this together because we all have other projects that are really what financially sustain us right we are now in the place and i'm happy to, to share a little bit about some of the organizations that i work with that i think it's important to support but really at the end of the day it is going to take People financially supporting this work so that we can, even myself included, right? Like, tamp down some of the other projects that I'm working on that I need to do to financially sustain myself so that we can pour time and energy and have staff that can dedicate this to uh, full time, right? Because there are. It's like all of this low-hanging fruit that is available to go and pick mm. in terms of the progress that can happen because we now have a body of research. We now have some tangible change that's happening. The biggest bottleneck is the lack of resources that are being invested into this space so that there can be multiple organizations that that uh, are established, and we're starting to, to see that. Right. The Organization for Ethical Non-Monogamy and Polyamory um, recently launched. The Chosen Family Law Center has been around for quite some time, but certainly could use support to grow uh, the Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition, which I'm a co-founder of, um, as well as you know the Modern Family Institute. And really want to repeat again, like to, in my mind, that opportunity that we've been given, right? that if we raise $2 million by the end of this year, We will be able to establish an institute at one of the leading academic institutions, public public academic institutions in the world. And it'll be the first time that we have a research-based institution that is focusing on these issues. So there's this tremendous opportunity. And if that were to happen, just in terms of the opportunity to scale this work and really be uh, hopefully stewards that help Uh, engage in a thoughtful, empirical-based process for supporting humanity in this next stage, this is a critical part of what's needed in that work um, for us to move forward. And to touch on those uh, wins that you were referencing, so excited about uh, plural domestic partnership. There's now three cities that in the United States that also that do not require a, um, residency in those cities. Um, so that people can go and just take a weekend trip and hang out in the hipster coffee shops of Somerville mass. Mm -hmm. And you can get a plural domestic partnership with more than one person, as long as everyone involved is consenting. And really why this is important is, uh, one really one of the, in terms of just legitimacy and there being recognition, and, and public you know uh, articles that come out to address this as a kind of a growing movement and normalizing it there. But also when it comes to in the U.S., right, with our healthcare system and it being based on your employer, you. So let's say um, that uh, Richard, you and I are married and you're um, uh, dating um, uh, Shivan and But you and I both have an employer in the U.S. that pays for our health insurance, but she does not. Well, this would give us the flexibility that we could, you know, take a trip to Somerville and you two could get a domestic partnership. But you and I, Richard, don't have to get a divorce and we can maintain the stability of our family without having to disrupt our family. I'm in. And, let's and do and it. Extend, all right. I'm, that's down. Well, let's, let's we accept your proposal. Thank you reset. so much. <laughs> yeah, great, 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 great. This is the first. This is the first, folks. <laughs> the first proposal we've had Ping on the show. Thank you. you so much. I'm flattered.
1: Um, <laughs> anyway, sorry. So, sorry him, go on. Go on. This on. is point.
0: <laughs> um, but then, you know, the other side of that is, so let's say, Richard, that you and I um, uh, uh, or that, that the two of you got a domestic partnership on, on Friday or Saturday, well, there's nothing stopping our employers from them firing us when we get back to work on Monday. And so the other side of this is non-discrimination ordinances. So adding non-monogamy as a protected class. And really the way that we're seeing this move forward is that we, again, are partnering with, and I see this not just as a separate issue from the families and relationships that fall outside of the nuclear family norm. So we're partnering with, you know, 38% of Americans are single, right? And, th- and many people do not live with a partner. So it's it's creating a coalition with that community, with blended families, with step families, with intergenerational families, with chosen families. It's, we, we, the ordinances that we passed and even the conversations that we're having we're much stronger when we're together. So we're building a coalition so that when we're having these conversations, it's much easier to say yes, because of the stigma that exists towards non-monogamy. It's much easier to say yes when we work together because there's a shared interest of not wanting to be discriminated against and to being recognized as legitimate across the board. And so that's the the path that we've been taking. And we, um, you know, Somerville became the first city to pass uh, a non-discrimination ordinance. Cambridge is following suit. We're also in conversations with uh, two cities, uh, Berkeley and um, Oakland, that have city council persons that are um, uh, outwardly naming uh, interest in supporting these ordinances. And again, th- the biggest issue is that we just we don't have a team and resources to really put together a, a campaign to really conduct research for us, that's kind of what Modern Family Institute does, is, is provide an empirical foundation and, and support on the back end, but and then really for these other organizations as well um, to start reaching out and um, asking for change. So at this point, it's, it's really up to grassroots folks and individuals that have <clears throat> relationships with a city council person or a mayor, at the municipal level, there's also conversations um, happening at the state level. I don't know if I can just disclose that yet, but one of the states, um, 50 states in the US is considering non-discrimination or, or having conversations at that level. But really it takes it's gonna take people um, uh, pouring resources in. So, so offering support through your resources or it's offering support through your contacts and either introductions for these organizations or reaching out and talking to people um, the people in your network that might be on a city council, um, and, and having those conversations.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Particularly after such an in-depth sort of, uh, serious conversation, uh, and it should be a serious conversation. Mm, Absolutely. Um, albeit peppered with some of my brilliant humor. Um, (laughs) but, uh, but but we, we do like to finish things off with a, a little bit of a game. Um, and Uh and this time we're going to do something we call question of the week but we we wanted to go down a therapy route with this one Um, we have a
2: therapist on the line indeed Uh, so (laughs) So we're going to ask you a a question
1: Um, the question is don't you think you need therapy to deal with these non-monogamous urges you're having (laughs) And I guess uh, I, how we I do, this I, I, yeah, right, sure, sure. Um,
0: <laughs> so, I, you know, my initial thought becomes when you ask that is you know there used to be a time that we would ask a similar question to someone who was having same sex urges as well.
1: Ooh, ooh, and that's a good, that's a good first.
0: <laughs> and we now know that that is incredibly harmful. And even my colleagues and I have put together a study that really demonstrates the impact of mononormativity in this minority stress, or suggesting that there's something wrong with people for being oriented a certain way. And I would say that consensual non-monogamy is an equally valid option. People aren't more in uh, inclined to have mental health issues in terms of the comparison studies that have been done They are also the relationships are inclined to last just as long and be just as healthy Then in fact what matters most is that there's agreements on The agreements not what the agreements are So that is what matters and there used to be a time but that is an ill-informed perspective and quite harmful and uh, you know, also, I would—I suppose—the last thing I might say to that is that really, where we also need to grow from the therapist's perspective is one. I think it's perspective like that, as I mentioned, that that lead to increased infidelity because people feel like they can't talk about it, and really, then it leads to more a lack, a lack of integrity. And by addressing this and normalizing this, there can be more integrity because it's easier for people to talk about it. But then also I think an interesting conversation is in situations of infidelity, where if someone were to cheat on their partner with someone of the same sex, let's say they're in a heterosexual relationship, there would be two conversations there. The first conversation would be, okay, you just violated our agreements and we need to account for this breach of trust and we need to work towards rebuilding our trust. The other conversation that is also important is that we're talking about your sexual orientation and creating a healthy and safe container for you to get in touch with your sexual orientation. But notably, we are not at that point in terms of our conceptualization within the field of psychotherapy and psychology more broadly to where we are talking about relationship orientation. So when someone cheats. There are oftentimes, you know, there's, there's a whole slew of issues that I think Esther Perel really addressed in her book, The State of Affairs, in terms of the challenges that, that the pressure that people experience around defaultly should, you know, this pressure to like leave your partner and it's over and it's catastrophic and all of these things. I, I, infidelity in part is a problem because we're not talking openly about it. Also, when in cases of infidelity, it's important that we separate the breach of trust and address that separately than than one's than someone's potentially relationship orientation. We are it, relationship orientation and consensual non-monogamy is not a license to commit infidelity. In fact, it is By definition the opposite and an inclination of creating more space so there can be more integrity in having these conversations But I think it is so critical and one of my missions as well in the work that we're doing is even introducing and 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 really promoting Awareness of the concept of relationship orientation and specifically in these instances so that we can have two separate conversations and therapists are educated enough to know about this concept, because I think word out is now it's more common to receive training and that there would be this conversation from most therapists about, oh, OK, let's address the you know infidelity, but let's also talk about your sexual orientation. Similarly, I would love for us to move in this direction of, OK, let's talk about the breach of trust, but let's talk about your orientation in terms of your authentic preferences or orientation about how you want to structure your relationships and what's healthy for you, what feels alive for you, what makes sense to you, what's spiritually in line with how you think about yourself and the world. And let's talk about if structuring your relationship this way in monogamy is what's best for you. And if you all want to potentially have conversations about what else is out there.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That is probably the most thorough answer to... Ever had. I love, <laughs> ever had. I love it. I love Brilliant. it.
2: Okay. Well, thank you so much, Octave, for your time. I just like, sure. I can't wait to listen back to this episode and edit You're it. I'm looking I, forward I love to it. editing I'm excited, this one. yeah. <laughs> um, we'd love you to tell our listeners where they can find you, um, any resources you'd like to to mention as well, where they can contribute to your fundraiser. Yep, just all the things where they can find you.
1: Not geographically, but just, just virtually.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, if they want to come hang out in the Bay Area, they <laughs> <laughs> Um. And So, yes, a couple um, organizations I certainly want to mention. I've already mentioned the Modern Family Institute. Um, and through our website, you can certainly jump on, learn a more, bit more about what we're doing. It's just modernfamilyinstitute.org. Again, about that, um, uh, by the end of... The year twenty twenty three. If we raise two million dollars, we'll be able to launch an institute at UC Berkeley. So certainly, if someone is in your network um, that would be interested in contributing or a large scale donor, um, that certainly would make things a lot easier for us as well in terms of the amount of time and energy that we're pouring into fundraising versus focusing on the projects. Um, we'll make some calls, but we certainly would. Yeah, great. Thank you for that, Richard. <laughs> um, and you know, a couple of the o- other organizations that I want to uh, give a shout out to, because I think they're doing great work, and it just uh, a tangible ways for people to plug in. Um, open workplaces, or through the organization of ethical nonmonogamy and polyamory. I'm on the board of that organization. I think they're doing a fantastic job of really creating a grassroots uh, opportunity, certain sort of ways for people to plug in. One of the projects that they're really focusing on is the open workplaces project. And so that's giving people to really um, uh, the team is in the process of developing resources. I'm contributing a lot to that project as well of just really creating a toolkit for people to be able to um, bring change within their workplace. So providing the resources, tools, data that they can then go and talk to um, individuals in their organization that hold, um, you know, uh, power that can make changes to bring about um, uh, a more inclusive workplace with non-discrimination, um, establishing employee resources, resource groups, or having uh, it included uh, in the mission of existing employee resource groups so that there's more visibility and advocacy in the workplace. Um, also, uh, another one is Chosen Family Law Center and the Poly-Emory Legal Advocacy Coalition. Um, these two groups are really leading the charge on the front of legal advocacy. Um, and they're doing a lot of great work there. So certainly we encourage um, your listeners to check out those organizations and um, support those organizations if they feel call- feel called to do so. Um, but yeah, and then other than that, also in, uh, a couple colleagues and I do um, consulting and offer support for organizations that are wanting to update uh, their policies around consensual non-monogamy if they're uh, wanting support around that we're available uh, to be hired to come in and offer consultation um, when they're ready to, to uh, update their policies there as well. Brilliant. I love that's when they're ready because they will know how they should be. That's right. If they want to (laughs) attract and retain talent in you know this uh, upcoming era, yeah, uh, so true. They certainly want to be down with consensual non-monogamy.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: Um, You can also get down with us. Please subscribe, rate, and review to, to us. We like five-star reviews, as I say, every week. Um, share this episode with a friend or with anyone else you think or might with, um, enjoy it.
1: Or with someone with lots of money that can donate. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. You were listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great, great. We're going to start like a sort of uh, like an ethical non-monogamy super pack of sorts where we can just kind of just, just –
0: raise all that money <laughs> to, to get the, uh, you know, to get it, to Seriously. get it going. <laughs> well, and, and there's a lot of coalition partners, right. With other groups that have shared interests of, of wanting to, you know, um, really consider what do healthy families look like and how do we create yeah. more support and care for our families and relationships. Right. Mm. So that's what we're certainly, where we're hoping is that yeah. we will be able to really build a coalition. Yeah. 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 Um, we're also looking to
1: build a coalition of social media follow- followers, so please follow <laughs> us on social media. Uh, we are at poly underscore podcast on both Instagram and, um, pff, I'm going to say Twitter. I know, I know that it's X now. The change is coming. I just, I can't, I don't, I'm not going to accept It's Twitter, Twitter, uh, and also threads.
2: And you can find us at our website. We are the poly podcast.captivate.fm. And you can email us at podcastthepoly at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Dr. Dr. Heath. Heath.
1: Thank you so much again. It's been
2: brilliant. See you later, guys. Thanks for having me Bye.
0: Bye.